Well, this morning, I'm not really focusing on God the Father or have a Father's Day message. As a matter of fact, we're going to be thinking about the Holy Spirit. As we've spent the last few weeks thinking through the gospel, we've thought about how God is our Savior. He is the one who has planned our salvation. And by his very nature, he's the one who brings it to pass. We thought about Christ as Lord. His cross and his resurrection proves that he is Lord and demands that we follow him. But we worship a triune God. And the Holy Spirit, co-equal with the Father and the Son, has a role and responsibility in salvation. And we want to look at that this morning. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Be looking at Romans 8, 1 through 11. Not going to properly walk through this word by word, but we'll try to draw out some themes here in regard to the Holy Spirit. When you start talking about the Holy Spirit, um, you might start thinking a little bit mystically, almost um, in the realm of the supernatural. Uh, the King James Version translates the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost, and you think of him as this unseen, untouchable force. And in some regard, that's true. And we have to accept that basically Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is a view of the world that depends on the fact that there is more than what we can just see and taste and touch and smell and hear. In other words, the world that exists is more than just the material world. It's not just the atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons that exist in our world. There's more than what can be observed. It's more than just material. If we start with a view of the world that looks at us, we have to concede that there's more to us than just matter. Now, a materialist would think that all that a human is, is matter. We're just our organs, we're just our brain, we're just our bones, and there's nothing more to us. The Bible teaches a completely different view of humanity. It would teach that man is a complex unity of material and immaterial. In other words, if you were to die and a physician performs an autopsy on you, you are more than just what that physician would see. There's more than just the material organs. There's more just than your brains and your eyes and your bones. There's more to you than that. You have a soul. You're not just a brain. You're not just atoms and motions. God has given you a soul. And so you are material and immaterial. When you die, your physical body stops working, but you don't cease to be. You have a soul. You have a spirit that continues to exist. And so we're this unity of material and immaterial, which is just strange because you think about yourself. We as humans, we think about our brains. You can do surgery on somebody and think about the very organ that is thought of as the mind, but it's more than that. You're more than just the organs that compose you. As you back up and you think of more than just yourself, and you think about the universe, we live in a universe that is more than just matter and energy. There is a realm that we can't interact with on a material level. There are angels and demons, and while they are at times interacting with the material universe, they're not bound by it. They live in the spirit realm. As we think about God, 
God existed before any matter existed. And so he, by nature and definition, is immaterial. It says in John 4 that God is spirit. And so he is not part of this material universe. He's more than that. He is not bound by it because he created it. He's not constrained by time or gravity as we are. He's not constrained by a body. He is more. He is spirit. And yet, we know that the Son of God, who's equal to God, took on flesh and entered into our world and, in some sense, became bound by the matter that he existed in. And so this world is a material and immaterial world. And so as we talk about something like the Holy Spirit, we have to start thinking more than just the things that we can touch and see. There's more than just that. There's a world that is beyond our scientific observation. We have a God who is without beginning or end, a God who does not grow weary, a God who is more real, as a matter of fact, than what we can teach, touch, see, smell, hear, feel, and taste. He's more real in a sense because he existed before all the things that we can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch, or whatever all the five senses are. We live... In a physical world, obviously, but it's governed by a God who is spirit. And so he's given us laws and decrees about how we live in the world that he has made. And those laws, in a sense, aren't material. Those are immaterial. Those moral laws are something that we adhere to, not just with our flesh, not just with our hands and our feet and our eyes, but with our very immaterial core of who we are, our hearts. We're obligated by the moral law that God has given us. It says in Romans 1.32 that we have this moral law, but in a matter of fact, we've decided to go away from it. It says in Romans 1.32 that though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is, the things that God tells us not to do. Romans 2.15 talks about our conscience. It says that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Again, if you do an anatomy class, there is no point that the teacher can point to on the chart of the human body where the conscience is. And yet the conscience is bound by God's moral law. That also is something you can't touch or see, but something he has revealed to us. So man from the start is obligated to live according to the standard of the immaterial God from our immaterial heart. We need to live according to God's ways from our very heart. But if we know ourselves, we know that we've strayed, we've gone away, not just in our hands and our eyes and what we've done with our mouths, but from our very hearts we have rejected and rebelled against God's law. And so we are corrupted, yes, in our physical body, but also in our spiritual self. And so we need redemption. Our corrupt self needs redemption. If you listen to yourself over the past number of years that you've lived, you know that you have said some awful things. You've said things that are atrocious, that you wouldn't ever want somebody to hear. And if somebody recorded it, you want to burn the tape it was recorded on. And so you've used your material mouth and your tongue and your teeth and the whole anatomy and physiology of your body to say awful things, 
But Jesus draws those awful things not really from your mouth. He puts it back into our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18 to 20, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. He's talking about the immaterial part of you, the soul. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. We therefore, yes, have a body that needs redemption, for we have used it to act out our sinful inclinations, but we have a heart that needs redemption. Our whole selves from inside out needs redemption. It needs help. And so when we speak about the gospel... The good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, it's more than just good news that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Yes, that's the core of it, and that is the substance of it. And nothing good could ever come if Jesus didn't do that. But God has no shortage of blessings that he pours out on us. He has no shortage in his redemption that he bestows on us. If the root of the problem is as deep as the sin and the sin goes as deep as our hearts, then God's good news comes to the very core of our hearts. It goes as far as the problem needs to go to be fixed. We know that the problem of sin, its root has passed beyond our mouths, it's passed beyond our fingers. Its root has gone all the way deep down into our heart. Our heart, the very core of who you are, where you think, where you plan, where you intend, where you will. The good news needs to reach even there. It needs to go that deep. Jesus bled and died to take away the guilt of your sin. We have to think about how the gospel reaches into our hearts and affects even there. And the way that it affects us is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is... A promise of the Old Testament, it says in, Joel's, in Joel 2.28, that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Isaiah in chapter 32 talks about a wilderness that's just barren of life and says that the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. He sets up this scene of a place where it's only inhabited by wild animals, this parched land that has no good and no flowering. And it will remain like that. It will remain parched. It will remain deserted and abandoned by anything good until, it says in Isaiah thirty-two fifteen, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. God has promised to pour out His Holy Spirit to bring a desert place into a place of growth and a place of blossom. Ezekiel 36 verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As you look at the barren wasteland of your heart, the place where it produces no good fruit, you need a divine action. You need the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on your heart to turn it from a wilderness into a place of blossoming, a place where fruit is born. And this too entails the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter wraps up his message of salvation and he talks about the forgiveness of sins, he says, 
to the people who've listened to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is as much a part of the gospel as Jesus' atoning death on the cross. It's a consequence of it. It's a result of Jesus' death on the cross. But the Holy Spirit comes along with the blessings of the gospel as is applied to us. The promise of God in the gospel includes the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who receive the gospel. This may not sound important to you. It may seem totally irrelevant. You may wonder who the Holy Spirit is, why you need Him, and it may even sound a little creepy to have this Spirit come and be poured out on you. It sounds extraterrestrial. It sounds supernatural. You may not want anything to do with it. And yet the reality is that unless you have the Holy Spirit of God come into your life, you are dead in your sins. You remain unalive toward God. You remain totally inclined towards the way of sin and you will never love God, never see Him as good as He is. You will never receive the good news of the gospel. And so you need the Holy Spirit because the problem of sin runs as deep as your immaterial person. And the Holy Spirit is the solution to that. So let's walk through with some speed Romans 8, 1 through 11 to see the role of the Spirit in our life. And we'll see Him working in our life in kind of three junctures, in our past, in our present, and in our future. And we see how He provides the solution to the problem we so desperately need fixing. Let's read Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God." You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is a hugely important passage of Scripture, and it starts off with one of the most famous verses in the Bible. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in some ways, the emphasis here is on the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see first the work of the Holy Spirit in your past. The Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, he is the third member of the Trinity, and it's often described that the God the Father plans, 
God the Son accomplishes and God the Spirit applies. It's one way to think about the Trinity. They work in complete harmony, however, so anytime you see one work of God, all three members of the Trinity are at work. God the Son is at work, God the Father is at work, and God the Spirit is at work. And so as we come to salvation and the application of Christ's death on the cross, it's no surprise that the Spirit has a prominent role in the work of salvation in your life. Romans 8.1 begins with this grand declaration that for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. It's a huge declaration for anyone who fears condemnation because you know that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You're free of all guilt. There is complete and total freedom. You've been given the get-out-of-jail-free card for all eternity. And it's that good that you will never face the wrath of God for your sins because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. You're not under condemnation. There's no condemnation for any of your sins in the past, any of your sins in the present, any sins in the future if you are in Christ. That's a complete statement. And it always applies for those who are in Christ. But Paul goes on to develop this a bit more fully and he explains why this is the case or how it's the case for you. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's think about this for a moment. Paul says that the spirit of life, or the law of the spirit of life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is referring to the law that God has given that stands outside of us, as a written code that demands how we are to live. You can almost think of it as a wall or a stone or brick wall that has all the commandments of God written on them. And we go to that wall and we read the commandments and we see them as something that we know we ought to do, but we cannot do. We cannot scale that wall. We cannot reach over it to get the other side of obedience on it. And as a result, we stand condemned under the law that God has given us because all we can do when we see those commandments is sin, break them, disobey them. And as a result of that law, in our flesh at work with that law, we sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so so Paul kind of summarizes that law that God has given as the law of sin and death. Not that there's anything wrong with the law itself, It says that the law is weakened by our flesh. It means that our sinful flesh could not keep the law that God had given. Paul goes at great lengths to make sure we know that there's nothing wrong with the law. If you look back at Romans 7, verse 7, it says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. This flesh that we have and the law that God gives kind of bubbles together like this concoction of vinegar and soda, and it produces the sin and death in us. And Paul goes on and says in 7.13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
So we encounter this brick wall of the law. Our sinful flesh can't keep it, doesn't want to keep it. And so death is produced in us. As Paul writes on in these verses, he uses phrases about walking according to the flesh, living according to the flesh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh. He's describing this life that wants to live totally independent of the law of God. It doesn't want to keep those commandments, and it cannot keep those commandments. And he says in verse 7 that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Talking about the flesh, one commentator writes, Paul means neither the soft muscular tissue which covers our bony skeleton, nor our bodily instincts and appetites, but rather the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed, our fallen egocentric human nature, or more briefly, the sin-dominated self. And Martin Luther referred to it as fallen human nature deeply curved in on itself. It's totally occupied with ourselves and not with God. It's a life of sin. Perhaps it's not the grossest of sins in the sense of murder or sexual perversion. It could be pride in the sense of independence from God. It could be the pride of setting your own moral standards and accomplishments and clinging to that. But either way, Paul says the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's at enmity with God. Why? It says in 8.7, for it does not submit to God's law. And it goes so far as to say, indeed, it cannot. You're unable to. You're like a paraplegic trying to get up and walk and you can't. You're like a blind man trying to see, and you can't. You're like a dead man trying to live, and you can't. You just cannot keep God's law. You're so bound to your sinful flesh. Not only are you bound to it, but you don't even want to keep God's law. And as a result, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the flesh, yourself, who you are apart from God, cannot please God. You are constrained to yourself, and in yourself you have no capacity to please God, and you are under the law of sin and death, and so you have no life. You have no life, and therefore you're under condemnation. This is the status of all who live in the flesh, and that's everyone who's born of Adam. That's everyone. So we're under this condemnation. We're under the law of sin and death. But verse 2 tells us why we aren't condemned if we're in Christ Jesus. And it's because the law of the spirit of life has set you free. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. So what is this? You have the law of sin and death, and you have the law of the spirit of life. The law of sin and death is what we've just described. The law of the spirit of life is the rule and regulation of the Holy Spirit coming to be applied into your very life. The spirit who who is life gives life to dead people to make you alive to his kind of life so that you're no longer under the law of sin and death. In other words, there's a new sheriff in town. In town, There's a new law in town. It's the law of the spirit of life. There's been a coup, an overthrow, a change of order. You can go from the law of sin and death to the law of spirit, 
of life. He's the jailbreaker. The Holy Spirit is the jailbreaker who sets you free from this condemnation. Jesus says in John 4.10 to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Later in John 7, Jesus clarifies he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit that can be kind of synonymous with this this bubbling um, freshwater spring that comes out and gives life to those who are weary and and needing of water. The Holy Spirit has this life-giving element to him. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. And he says these profound words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you're like Nicodemus, you ask the question, well, how can a man be born again? You know the answer if you've been in church for any length of time, but the question is still legitimate. Jesus gives this huge gauntlet that he's just thrown. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. That's impossible. How does that happen? As little control as you had over your first birth, you're asking me to be born again? How do I do that? Nicodemus asked, do I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? How do you do that? That's the level of new life that you need. You need to be born again. You are so corrupt in yourself and your flesh that you just need to be started over with. You need to be born again. Well, how is that done? Jesus answers in John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit, like the wind, blows into your life. And with him comes life, real life, life toward God, life that wants to obey him, life that loves God, life that knows God, life that enjoys God, life that delights in God, life that sees God in his word for what it is. Where do you get that from? The Holy Spirit. That's why he's the spirit of life, and that's why we need to be under his law, under his domain. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is just a fancy way of saying being born again, and that comes by the Holy Spirit. So the law of the Spirit is essentially the gospel. It's essentially the good news that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and has declared that he would send his Spirit to his people to give you new life. And that's what he's done. For those who are in Christ, you have been given the Spirit. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. Paul says, are you so foolish as to think that you who have begun by the Spirit can continue on by works of the law? No, you receive the Spirit by faith. 
You believe the gospel and the gift that God gives you is not just forgiveness of sins. Not just a don't go to hell. He's given you the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit in your past. This is the work of the Spirit. He goes on to work in your present. Not that He just gives you new life and then He walks away from you, never to be with you again. The reason that we can be transferred into this new law is because God did what the law cannot do. Verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. We know that. That's the story of the cross. That's where Jesus Christ went to the cross, was punished for our sin. He was condemned in the flesh and took the judgment that was deserved for us. And God condemned sin in the flesh. But why did He do that? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. When Jesus died on the cross and took the condemnation of sin, it wasn't, again, just to take the guilt off of our shoulders. It was to give us the Spirit in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, what is the righteous requirement of the law? Look over at Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. When God comes to save you, He doesn't come to set you free so you can go live your life however you want and then still get to heaven. He comes to set you free from the law of sin and death in order that you might have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in you, namely, love. He's given you the Spirit so that you can love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so the Spirit comes into your life and generates in you new life, and that new life is manifested predominantly in a life of love towards others. And as you love one another, you fulfill the law, because the law is summed up in that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. The gospel doesn't just end with our sins forgiven. It's the way so many see it. Come to Jesus and get saved. Get your sins forgiven. And that's true and amazing. He did remove our sins. But He gives us the gift of Himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It is assumed that any Christian who is really a Christian has the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. 
And if you have the Spirit, then what's going to happen to you? You have new life, and you have a new life that leads to the fulfilling of the law. The fulfilling of the law is a life of love. It's what we are to live by. And so the gospel is the giving of the Spirit in addition to the forgiveness of your sins. He sets us free, and then he gives us life in him. And so this language is used all throughout Romans 8. Walk according to the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They're not given as commands. They're just given as statements of the life that Christians live. We walk according to the Spirit. We live according to the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Walking and living with a mindset on the Spirit rather on the flesh will result in a life that is in accordance with the essence of God's law that we can never keep in the flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, gives us some insight into how this happens as we set our minds on the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, tells us, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the line of reasoning goes, the Holy Spirit is the one who searches the entire mind of God, knows the mind of God. The Spirit comes into our life and reveals, reveals the mind of God. And we, as people who are saved and redeemed by Christ, set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is set our minds on the things of God, and we know that God is declared to be God is love. And so we live a life of love because of the role of the Spirit in us as we set our minds on Him. As a believer, you have the mind of Christ in you through the Holy Spirit. That means you need to think like Him, live like Him. Philippians 2, 4 through 5 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, set our minds on the Spirit, on the things of the Spirit. Now, what if you don't do that? Or don't know how to. Well, if you don't do that, if you don't walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, or set your minds on the Spirit, it may be because you don't have the Spirit. It may be because you have never truly repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ and you've never received the gift of the Spirit before. If all of this is foreign to you, living a life by the Spirit's empowerment to live a life of love, that's foreign. You need to evaluate your heart. Have you been born again? You know Christ Jesus as Lord. But if you do know Christ, if you know that the Spirit has played a role in your life, but it just seems so hard to live according to His ways, what do you do? Well, you begin with the reality that the Spirit is a gift. There's nothing that you can do to earn Him, to work to get Him, to work to keep Him. He's a free gift. And so I'd start with thanking God that He's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then second, I'd call you to put your attention on where you will most see the mind of the Spirit revealed, and that's in the pages of Scripture. 
The Holy Spirit is described as the author of Scripture. He is the one who's breathed it out, the breath of God. He's the one who carried along the prophets of old and has had the Scripture generated. And so turn off the radio, turn off the internet, turn off the TV, put away the newspaper and open the book and receive there the words of the Spirit of Christ. Meditate on them and set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit in your present And then finally, the work of the Spirit in your future. The Spirit's not done with you. He's given you new life. He's leading you in a life of love. But you live your life in a body that is, uh, let's say, decaying. You live in a human fleshly body that is getting older. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. And then in verse 16, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so our physical body gets older. It gets more and more dilapidated. But as you walk with Christ, your inner self gets renewed. And so there's this incongruity where you might look old, but your spirit is new. Your knees might hurt. Your eyes might not work as well. Your body doesn't function as good, but your heart is as good as it ever has been in your life. It's because of the work of the Spirit in you. Well, does that mean that the Spirit is just trying to get your soul released from the confines of your physical body? Is that what he's after? You should like living in your body in the sense that it should be really awkward to think of life without it. You can't even imagine what's life without a body. When God created humans, he didn't create them as souls and then put them into body. He put them together at the same time. And so you and your body go hand in hand. Well, the Holy Spirit's not done with you yet. He's working on your heart and he's going to work on that until the day you die. But he's not done with your body either. And so it says in verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. But the Spirit is not just at work in renewing your inner self. He's also in working in renewing your outer body. But that won't come until after you die. The Spirit of the one who raised Jesus Christ bodily from the grave is the same Spirit who is in you who will give life to your mortal bodies. And so the promise is that one day when Jesus returns, he will resurrect you to glory so that your whole heart is redeemed. No sin left in it. Not one black spot of sin in your whole heart at all. But then the Spirit will raise you to new life in your physical body, so that that perfect union of your heart without sin and your body without decay will be joined together forever so that you can go on living a life like God originally made Adam and Eve to do. The Spirit's not done with you. He's going to resurrect you and give life to your mortal bodies and so that you can worship him for eternity without decay and without sin. You need the Holy Spirit. 
That's why you see as the gospel is preached, if you truncate it by leaving out the ministry of the Spirit, you truncate the gospel. You leave out an essential part. Jesus Christ came, yes, to take care of sin, but also to send us the Spirit. Why? Well, because we need the redemption of our hearts and the redemption of our bodies, and the Spirit applies both to us. So Christianity, in essence, is a supernatural religion. You need the Spirit to come and work in you, to save you, to give you new life. You need Him to bring you into conformity to the image of, his son, of the Son of God. And you need Him one day to make your whole body new. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Spirit. You've not left us as orphans. You've given Him to us. And we know He's called Your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, the Spirit who testifies in our hearts that You are our Father, the One who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, the One who conforms us to the image of Christ, the One who will redeem our bodies. Oh, thank You, Father, for giving us Your Spirit, for giving us new life, and really for giving us Yourself. We praise You and thank You. Help us to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step, with him, to live under his ways and not go back to our old fleshly ways. Give us this help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.